Praise the Lord, we're continuing forward in the book of Acts. God's kindness has brought us together once again to worship Him. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 25 of chapter 9, Saul preaching Christ in Damascus. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 10 in chapter 9 through to verse 31. Our focus will be on verses 20 to 25. Brothers and sisters, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So as we look at today's text, there will be some key points that I'll emphasize along the way. 
We need to take care with Scripture. We need to see that we are prepared by God for the ministry that He has for us. If so, we will also be able to confound and win arguments from Scripture showing that Jesus is the Christ. Unassailable arguments we will be able to present. We will see the importance of immediate obedience from today's text. We'll also see persistence in the face of a less than perfect response to preaching, even persistence in the face of significant resistance. We really need to see also an important principle that we should expect rebellion could intensify after preaching Christ. And an associated question is, how do you resist God's work in your life? You know, when we read the scriptures, we always want to see ourselves as the good guy. Um, We'll hopefully take some time to consider how we're also like the bad guys sometimes. We'll see God's providential care of his people in today's text. And that no one can take us off this earth until it's time to go. We'll also see, brothers and sisters, as we'll ponder to consider it as we go, the beauty, the beauty of the church at work here in this text. A forgiving church. A church that in forgiveness understands that the door must be left open to restore trust. Perhaps trust can be restored even if you've participated in killing someone's loved ones. And then we'll see, as that trust can be restored, the cooperation and a synergy of working together in God's church that could never take place apart from that forgiveness and opening the door to rebuild trust. So with that introduction, let's dive in. And we need to go back a little bit and look at verse 19 in chapter 9. The text says, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. I believe this will illustrate something to us about being very humble with Scripture and taking care with Scripture. In the King James Version, uh, the text says, Then was Saul certain days with the disciples. And this Greek word here that the King James translates, then was, means to come to pass, to happen or to arise or to appear in history, Pastor Phil Kaiser says it indicates a general coming to pass at some point. So, it is accurate to understand verse 19 of chapter 9 of the book of Acts as saying, so when he had received food, he was strengthened, and that's referencing the immediate time frame following his conversion. And then it says, Then it came to pass that Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So, an approximately three-year time frame does not necessarily contradict this phrase, then it came to pass. Because one very likely understanding is that there was a three-year time frame between Paul's conversion, approximately three years, between his conversion and this some days that he spent with the disciples at Damascus. But anyone who just reads through these verses in chapter 9, it's likely that we'll miss that. And we'll assume we understood the timeline. 
What we want to do is we want to compare this with Paul's autobiographical statements written around AD 49 to the Galatians, and that's based on the Southern Galatia theory, that dating of the book of Galatians written to those churches in Southern Galatia, which is now Southern Turkey. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 19. We're going to look at those verses. So Acts 9.19 is silent on Saul's time in Arabia, which we're going to see listed in Galatians 1. So after he had received food and was strengthened, which we saw, he went to Arabia for some unspecified amount of time, and then he returned to Damascus and spent some days with the disciples at Damascus before he escaped and went to Jerusalem, which is the focus of today's text, is that engagement, that interaction with the Jews in Damascus and their attempt to kill him. This is the background for that. In Galatians 1.18, the text says, Then after three years. That is likely referring, and we're going to read it, that's likely referring to three years passing between his conversion and his first visit to meet the apostles in Jerusalem. And it's worth noting that this text <clears throat> doesn't require the idea that he'd never been to Jerusalem in this three-year time frame. But it certainly requires the idea that he had not met with the apostles in Jerusalem. Because in the Galatians, Paul is defending his apostolic ministry as equal to the other apostles, not received from them, not a second-generation apostle, but directly from Jesus Christ himself, one of the necessary qualifications for being an apostle. So now let's look at verses 11 through 19 of chapter 1 of Galatians. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. So this is how Paul had been attacked there by some at, that church, at those churches in southern Galatia. Going on, verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. <clears throat> So in verses 13 and 14, we see Saul as the persecutor of Christ and his church. We've seen that described in the book of Acts already. We see Paul describe his conversion in verses 15 and 16a. And we believe his conversion likely occurred around the year 33. <clears throat> and then verses 16b to 17a, Saul is in Arabia for almost three years. That's what he says about the time after his conversion. And then in 17b of Galatians chapter 1, he's back in Damascus, which is probably around A.D. 36. And we have to grant we can't be dogmatic about this. There 
are um, reasonable arguments against this time frame. But this does, I mean this timeline, timeline, this does seem to explain the varying texts in Scripture that that give us this timeline of this time frame. In verse 18, we see Saul's first encounter with the other apostles. And like I said, this is three years after his conversion. And again, to emphasize, this text does not say that he did not visit Jerusalem or, or other places for that matter during this three-year time span. Saul, Paul later, is recounting to the Galatians <clears throat> what's important about this three-year time frame, where he was primarily, and that he did not confer with the apostles. That's the key point in Galatians. But it does teach us about this time frame. So here in Galatians, we see that from his conversion to his first visit with the apostles in Jerusalem, it was about three years. And Paul tells us that he was in Arabia and Damascus during those three years. Now, he doesn't say he was exclusively there. He could have been somewhere else. But he was primarily in those two locations. We can definitely take that from the text. If the some days there that we see in Acts 19b, the second half of Acts chapter 9, verse 19, not Acts 19, but chapter 9, verse 19. If that's the only time frame that he was in Damascus during this three years, then it seems that he was in Arabia for the larger part of three years. And then after that, he was in Damascus for some days. And those some days in Damascus are the setting for what we're going to look at in today's text. So this is the background context for today's verses. Now, Arabia is mentioned only twice in the New Testament, both times in the book of Galatians. You've already seen one of them. Now we'll look at the other, chapter 4 from Galatians. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, there are a lot of theological ideas there that are not the focus of today's sermon. But what we can see in the nearest context of Paul writing himself is that he references Mount Sinai in Arabia, which serves as a biblical biblical clue for where he possibly went. What he was considering in his mind is Arabia, because there's some questions about what Arabia meant geographically at that time. Commentary says, this is Calvin, in the Acts of the Apostles, Luke has omitted these three years. In like manner, there are other passages of the history which he does not touch. And hence, the slander of those who seek to build on this a charge of inconsistency in the narratives is ridiculous. Let godly readers consider the severe temptation with which Paul was called to struggle at the very commencement of his course. He who but yesterday, for the sake of doing him honor, had been sent to Damascus with a magnificent retinue, is now compelled to wander as an exile in a foreign land, but he does not lose his courage. And so 
That's important background information for this word immediately we're about to see in verse 20. <clears throat> and um, a reading of chapter 9 would certainly make it sound like he went directly from his conversion experience to immediately preaching in Damascus. But it appears from Scripture far more likely that he had years in the wilderness before this time of preaching. <clears throat> so, a lot of thoughts we could go into there, but I think we can just pause and consider that this was a time of preparation. I think we can say with confidence it was a time of preparation for him. <clears throat> All right. Now, moving into verse 20, with that understanding of the background. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. So he's back in Damascus. <clears throat> and what does he do when he gets there? To go and visit with friends. Well, probably saw them. But what was his purpose upon stepping foot back in Damascus to begin his ministry? Immediately is worth noting. When Saul returned to Damascus from Arabia, he did not delay his obedience. We need to understand that delayed obedience is often actually just disobedience. Delayed obedience is often just disobedience. It's true for us adults. It's true for children. And it's an important point for us to see here. That we would promptly give ourselves to Christ and to walk promptly into obeying Him. And, and don't rationalize any delays. As God calls you to obey Him, obey Him immediately. Next, what did He do? He preached Christ that He is the Son of God. That's what the text says He did. It's very simple. The mission that He was given, we've discussed the other apostles and the mission that they were given that we see earlier in the book of Acts. And He has the same exact mission as the other apostles. Saul declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We're going to see in verse 22 that Saul is proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Since his conversion, which we know is very likely years earlier now, Saul has become deeply knowledgeable of how Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And it's, it makes sense because we see this is what Jesus did with his apostles during the 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension. We see that in the Emmaus Road. We've studied that this year. And it doesn't it bring more meaning and depth to looking at this to think about all the scriptures that we've looked at where Jesus is the foretold Messiah from Genesis to Malachi. Saul has detailed knowledge both of Old Testament Messianic prophecies and also of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus Christ. He understands not only the Old Testament prophecies, but he also understands how Jesus has fulfilled all of that and that he alone is the Christ. And he declares this immediately upon arriving. Matthew Henry says, what he preached, he preached Christ. When he began to be a preacher, he fixed this for his principle which he stuck to ever after. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing but Christ and Him crucified. He preached concerning Christ that He is the Son of God. 
His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased, and with us in Him, and not otherwise. May we be focused on Christ in our lives and in our preaching. Notice where He started in Damascus. Where did He start? You see there, He started in the synagogues. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, and you know this, don't you? For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Saul, like Jesus, like the apostles, begins his work in each town, first in the synagogue, if the town has a synagogue. The gospel of the kingdom goes out to the Jews first. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews cannot complain they were ignored or underprioritized by their Messiah. He was born into the very midst and he walked amongst them and preached to them and demonstrated his glory and clearly displayed that he was fulfilling all of the prophecies and sent messengers to them for decades. And they killed them and ignored them. Many of the Jews killed them and ignored them. Some were converted. Jesus had said at the time of Saul's conversion, do you remember we looked at it? We read it this morning. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's what he's doing here. He's bearing Christ's name first to the children of Israel in Damascus. So what happens as he's preaching Christ, proving Christ to these people in Damascus? Verse 21 says, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? You see that the apostles, as we you know, see later on in, in chapter 9, they have the same response. Oh, this guy's just tricking us. He's pretending, right? He's going to really bind us once he figures out who all the real Christians are. All who heard were amazed, right? That's Jew, that's Gentile, that's those who would end up believing and those who would end up not believing, it's everyone. They were all amazed because the same man was an infamous destroyer of Christians in the past. He bound them in Jerusalem. He harassed them in Damascus. He helped have them killed. He left their children without parents. He was the devoted underling of the chief priests, the most powerful people in that area. But now, he's a new, he really is now a new and different man. But just like us, it's hard to believe that, isn't it? And isn't that just what the devil does? The devil sends traitors into our midst. So we just don't know, do we? It's not unreasonable that they would say this. Who is this guy really? Consider it. Some of these very people may have, probably did have friends or loved ones who had been imprisoned or even killed because of Saul's prior expressed malice towards the church. How could they ever learn to both love and trust Saul? Yeah, I forgive him. Yeah, I love him. But I will never trust him again. A lot of them probably said that. He will never be trusted by me again. Well, never is a big word, isn't it? How could they ever learn to do both? 
What must they see in order to finally believe that He's authentic? What do they have to see? What fruits of repentance do they need to see? What would you have been thinking if you'd heard Him preaching Christ after He had helped bind and kill Christians? What would have been on your mind? You see, there's a a biblical path back to truly restored relationships that's on display in this text. If we don't learn from this, then broken relationships that can be restored and lead to synergy and lead to organized, meaningful work together will be lost unless we learn the beauty of forgiveness and the fruits of repentance that are available to us in relationships. It's on display for us in this text. But there would be those who would listen to Saul, as we know. Listen to the, how the Spirit worked in Saul. The Spirit who worked in Saul would work also in his hearers to trust him. Commentary says, Who would have thought then that he would ever preach Christ as he does? Doubtless this was looked upon by many as a great confirmation of the truth of Christianity. That one who had been such a notorious persecutor of it came on a sudden to be such an intelligent, strenuous, and capacious preacher of it. This miracle upon the mind of such a man outshone the miracles upon men's bodies. And giving a man such another heart was more than giving men to speak with other tongues. So it is a great miracle that Saul was converted and became a new man. It's a great miracle when any of us repent of our sins and go through significant changes. But brothers and sisters, it is also a miracle when we believe that other people have repented and are truly changing. And we open the door to restore trust. Do you see what I'm saying? Unforgiveness leaves the door to restore trust closed. Fake forgiveness says I forgive you and leaves the door closed. And does not leave opportunity for restored trust and rebuilding trust. We don't want to be like that. What happens next? The text tells us that Saul confounds the Jews. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So, first I want us to note that in spite of their amazement, their astonishment, who is this guy? What does he do? Does he go back to Arabia? Does he give up? No, he continues to preach Christ. He grows stronger, we are told. They did not all at once give heed to his word, but rather pondered much his prior violence toward God's church. Here's this guy talking to them, and a lot of times their amazement is just, who is this person? But nevertheless, what did Saul do? He stayed focused upon his mission because he's there to serve Christ. Because he's there to serve Christ. His Savior. And the fruits are to be left, the outcome is to be left in the Lord's hands. And he's just going to be faithful to complete his ministry. And in this, he's increasing in his strength of persuasion. As time goes on, he's not shrinking back. He's learned all the scriptures and how they apply to Christ. And he's presenting that to people over and over again and he's growing in strength. It's like he can do it with his Eyes closed and his hands tied behind his back now. He can tell them from the scripture who Jesus is over and over again. He's growing stronger. He doesn't give up. Note that. A true minister of the gospel 
preaches first and foremost for one audience, God himself. And that should be our lives. And all the results must be left in his hands. And that, you see, faithfulness in Saul's life. Next, what did he do? As he continued, the text tells us he confounded them, the Jews in Damascus particularly, as he proved, you see that word, proved to them from Scripture that he is the prophesied Messiah. So what does this mean? Well, if you had an honest debate judge, they'd be like, Saul, the winner. Jews, the losers. He won. He confounded. He proved such a powerful and clear exposition of Scripture and of Christ's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, the time after his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit. He knew it all. And what does that mean? They were left with no arguments against Jesus as the Christ. They didn't have any left. They, they spilled all their arguments and Saul undid every single one of them. Every unbelieving objection was overcome and the Jews were thoroughly and permanently intellectually vanquished in Damascus. And then they all repented and no. Okay? So there's, it's an important point here that we see that every apologist evangelist needs to understand that they can have the perfect argument and receive nothing but death threats as a result. Commentary says, he ran down his antagonists and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. He silenced them and shamed them, answered their objections to the satisfaction of all indifferent persons, and pressed them with arguments which they could make no reply to. In all his discourses with the Jews, he was still proving that this Jesus is very Christ, is the Christ, the anointed of God, the true Messiah promised to the fathers. He was proving it, that is affirming it and confirming it, teaching with persuasion. And we have reason to think he was instrumental in converting many to the faith of Christ and building up the church at Damascus, which he went there to make havoc of. <clears throat> so, what is about to happen to Saul is not because he failed to present the gospel of the kingdom accurately. Okay? He preached in such a way that he proved from Scripture who Jesus Christ is. And how did the Jews respond? They try to kill Saul. Right? What should they do? Right? They should throw a party. He should be the honored guest in the town. Everyone should bring some food and they should sit around and talk about the glory of God in Saul's life and in the kingdom of Israel. But that's not what happens. <clears throat> After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. How did the Jews respond to his unassailable argument? <clears throat> Once they lost that argument, did they repent in dust and ashes? Did they submit to Christ? Did they trust in Christ? Did they believe in him as the Messiah? Did they go on to obey him and to do his will? No. And it wasn't neutral either. The truth moves people. <clears throat> the truth of God moves people. When you hear the word of God, it will move you. When I hear the word of God, it will move me. And you will move either towards God or away from God. 
as a result of hearing God's word. There's no in between when we hear God's word. What did they do? They had heightened rebellion. They got angrier and they made a plan to kill him. And what this really means, and they may not have known it, they had zero intention of changing their position as they were engaged in debate with Saul. This was not an honest debate. They're chained to their deception. They love their falsehood. And when their false God was made evident by Saul, they did not repent. Nor would you or me. You see, Saul was chained to his idols as well. He loved his deception also. But Jesus delivered him. These Jews have been left to themselves. And we see the result of what happens when we are left to ourselves. They plot to kill him. <clears throat> this, is not, this is not legal according to Jewish law. Even going so far as to watch for him day and night in order to kill him. We're going to see in a minute at least one way that was probably accomplished was through the civil magistrate. So, another point. I've mentioned it already. Once an apologist evangelist has won the argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you've demonstrated this from Scripture, and you've called for repentance because God commands all men everywhere to repent. Do not be surprised when repentance does not flow forth. And it takes a lot of courage just to go through all of these steps as a faithful apologist and evangelist because, you know, an apologist just lays out the truth and an evangelist says, now repent. And you've got to go the full, the full process all the way through. And don't be surprised when instead increased malice and violence erupt. Be prepared as an evangelist to experience the greatest malice when you give the purest preaching of Christ accompanied by the call to repent. Don't let that surprise you. You're not there, are you, primarily for the results. You're there for Christ, as we should be, all of us. Commentary says, this is Calvin again, we see what the hatred of the truth does. For when the wicked see that they are unable to resist, they are carried headlong into bloody fury. They would gladly contemn the word of God if they could. But because they are enforced, whether they will or not, to feel the force thereof, they run headlong like furious beasts with blind violence. I'll pause for a moment just to say, you know, that's you apart from Christ's work as well, right? Don't forget to, you know, apply all of this as we go through, not just the good guy parts to yourself and the graciousness of God to give you a soft heart to respond properly to his word. Back to Calvin. The unadvised and rash heat of zeal will always break out into such cruelty unless men suffer themselves to be ruled by the word of God. This is assuredly horrible blindness. For why are they so mad, save only because their wounded conscience doth vex them? But God does by this means punish their hypocrisy who do therefore hate sound religion because being friends of darkness, they fly from the light. So this is a sad reality of the trajectory of the heart that is not submitted to God's word and the way that that person's life will respond to those who bring God's word to them. May it never be so of any of us, but that we would count any person a friend who would bring the scriptures to us.
who would seek to help us walk in the path of truth. So what happens next? The plot became known to Saul. The Lord knows how to preserve his saints. He is, after all, the ascended, reigning, omniscient, omnipotent king. And so we see in the midst of this hatred the great love of Christ for his saints. And his love is much greater for us than the hatred of his enemies is for us. Their devotion to watch day and night at the gates is nothing compared to the devotion of Christ to watch over us day and night. So what happens next is that Saul escapes. He escapes in the night. Verse 25, we're told, Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Now, Saul, later Paul, wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is approximately A.D. 56. So this is about 20 years later that Paul is writing about this. He says, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. I got away. So he's mentioning this in the section in 2 Corinthians where we've already read this before, all the suffering that he went through. And he says a little something about God's greatness. Then he's like, oh, and I forgot. It's almost like he forgot to list this suffering and he throws it in there at the end of chapter 11. So I think it's likely we see here again a teamwork between the Jews and the Gentile authorities. Right? I say chief priest, you say Pontius Pilate. Right? Right? I say apostles, you say chief priests. And then they're going to be turned over to the Romans eventually. And so we see over and over again all that to say the Jews working with the civil magistrate to try to get get their will done upon those Christians that they wanted gone. Now, it is true, another possibility is, that both the Jews and King Aretas were trying to harm Saul independently of one another. That's certainly a possibility. Um, This is, though, probably the way that they they were watching the gates, is through the soldiers. All right, next. The Lord shows us here that it is good and right at times to flee from persecution. Okay? You are not necessarily being unfaithful if you flee from persecution. Some might be called to stay. Some might be called to go. It's going to depend on personal calling. It's going to depend upon the situation. The zealots don't think that way. We can pause and kind of look over here and think about the zealots in Jewish history. They just fought. They would never back down. They would never turn away. They just fought, and they ended up getting killed a lot of times because they were basing their path on human wisdom and human effort instead of looking to Christ and following Him. Commentary says, This story as it shows us that when we enter into the way of God, we must look for temptation and prepare accordingly. So it shows us that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that we may not be by it deterred nor driven from the way of God. Also, if we'll look closely, the Lord shows us here the beauty of His church, the power of grace and the power of forgiveness on display. Those who once threatened in both life and freedom by Saul do now risk their own lives and freedom to assist their prior vicious enemy 
now made their friends in Christ. The Lord can overcome any broken relationship through His gospel, through repentance and forgiveness. Consider that some of these helpful Christians may have suffered grievously at Saul's hands in the past, and if they didn't, they certainly knew that he had done this to others. Isaiah 55 tells us that the Lord's ways, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And in that text, specifically, He speaks to us about... Pray for me, I'm going off my notes. Specifically, He's talking about His heart towards the unrighteous. Starting at verse 6 of 55 of Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now comes the text. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that text there that is so frequently quoted is in reference to God's response to those who have turned away from Him, to the unrighteous, to the wicked. And He says that He will have mercy on Him and He will abundantly pardon Him. He talks of his compassion and his pardoning heart towards those who have turned away from him, those who have forsaken him. And so by implication, what does this say about us when it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways? What are our thoughts? Oh, you treat me that way? See you. What are our ways? No, I'm not returning that phone call. No, I'm not going to be kind. No, I'm not going to send anything. I'm going to close my heart off to that person who harmed me. That, that's man's ways. That's man's approach. That's not the gospel. May we be like God. In His grace to us, may we be like Him and have those hearts of compassion, eager to forgive, eager to display abundant mercy and compassion, even though there's no way to guarantee we won't be harmed again. What happens is we open the door for the possibility of restored relationships and future synergy greater than anything we could have ever imagined. Think of the beauty of restored trust on display here. Not only do they forgive Saul, okay? Okay, I'm not going to help the Jews kill him, all right? But I'm just going to sit over in my house and see what happens, right? They didn't, they didn't go the Switzerland route and... Try to play it neutral. They had given Saul through these days an opportunity to demonstrate fruits of repentance. And they'd observed those fruits of repentance somehow and chose to trust him. And they gave him the chance. We have to think they gave him the chance to prove his repentance by his deeds. There's no way that these Christians would have risked their lives and their freedom if they thought that Saul was still in his own ways if they thought this Saul was still pretending. They had to have believed that the most likely conclusion 
was that he had been struck by the presence of Jesus Christ, just like he said. And what does this lead to? Look at the wisdom of their teamwork. The church at work together. Who's got the basket? Who's got the ropes? What part of the wall are we going to go over? I, you know, when you think about being in heaven, I think, I don't know, I think there's going to be an opportunity, hopefully, to see some of these great events and some of the details that took place and how they happened. But think about what it took for these Christians to work together to know the wall, to get the ropes, to know the basket, all the details of that that they worked on together. They had to pick the right night. They probably had passwords. It would have been nice to see that. This is restored relationship and synergy and dominion activity on display and preserving the life of one of God's precious, Jesus said it himself, select servants. Jesus does this in and through his church. Note this. How does Jesus save Saul? He could have just plucked him out of there. How did he get Philip from one place to another? Could he have done that with Saul? He certainly could have. But he doesn't. Instead, he uses forgiveness, repentance, restored relationship, and church synergy to deliver Saul from his enemies. Take note of that. By the Lord's guidance... By the Lord's guidance, there's no threat that we cannot overcome. You name it. I don't care how strong their computers are. I don't, have it. I don't care how many world, worldwide satellites they have. I don't care if they're listening right now. They probably are. They are not God. And His omnipotence and His omniscience and His love and His presence will see His people through. And often He will do it through this great demonstration of repentance, forgiveness, restored relationships. We should expect that. Okay, some questions to bring it home. First of all, please have you considered the humility necessary to approach Scripture with care? Okay? Because I'll tell you, I hit Acts 9 and went through here, and I think I may have said some things last week in the sermon that may not be accurate in regards to how when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. I treated that as if it was one combined set of events. And it may not be. <clears throat> it may be that he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus later. Not immediately, okay? Because I think I made the statement that, you know, one of the first things you'll see in a Christian's life is them going and connecting with the church, right? And that's a true statement, right? That, that, but it may not follow from this text. Okay, from verse 19. So let's be careful with Scripture. Let's look at commentaries. Let's look at other parts of Scriptures and be careful with the Scripture. We think we know what it says and we present it that way. But we always let other Scripture inform Scripture. And we want to learn from those who've gone before us. All right, next. Do you see your life, and one way to describe your life is that you're being prepared, you have been prepared, and you're being prepared by God to confound all who resist that Jesus is the Christ. And that you are called, not just your pastor, not just your deacon, not just your church leaders, not just your mother, not just your father, not just the young men, not just the adults, not just the young ladies. Every one of us is called to know the Word of God so well that we can confound and prove that Jesus is the Christ from His Word. That's what we're called to do. So, do you view your life that way? Do you have that 
dedication to that process. No matter, no matter what else you're doing in life, is the Word of God always there, learning, growing in Scriptures, being more and more able to confound and to prove who Jesus is from Scripture. Next. What are the things that you do to delay obedience? I think it would be a question for you to ask yourself and to contrast yourself. We see the faithfulness in Saul's life. What are the things you do to delay obedience? What's a time in your life where you, you were really convicted of something and you didn't want to do it, but you did it immediately? And think about the fruits of that in your life. Tell that story. Tell that story. Testify to God's goodness to you. Because the scripture tells us that as we obey him, he manifests himself to us in the midst of our obedience. We know him better. We should have stories to tell about the fruits of immediate obedience. Watch out for the lie that you will tell yourself that you've got to clean yourself up first. You've got to get some other things straightened out first. I'll take care of that area whenever this and that and this and that are taken care of. No, no. If God has shown it to you and he's proven it to you by his word, right then, fix it. Repent on the spot. Right then. Next. <clears throat> Persistence in being a faithful minister do you understand that it's dependent upon who you are serving and why you're doing what you're doing? Examine your motives and see if perhaps when you get discouraged, is it because you're not seeing the outcomes that you want? And then you discover that the motives are really not for the Lord. And maybe not pure motives. Persistence, perseverance in the face of resistance and threats and outcomes that you did not expect is the fruit of knowing that Jesus never changes. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only one who will never leave us or forsake us. He is the only one who will never surprise us in any situation because he will, well, he'll surprise us with his goodness and his glory, but it's just a new kind of surprise of something that we already know, that he's so wonderful. He will never let us down. And we walk into every situation for that purpose, to please Him, to be a God pleaser. That's where perseverance comes from. Come what may, we will serve Him. All right, next. <clears throat> Don't be surprised and be prepared to rejoice when you're persecuted because you've preached the gospel. Okay? This tells us that there's a certain class of human being who are going to become vicious and try to kill you if you present Christ to them. Now, they may not try to kill you literally, like a knife through the heart or putting you on a cross. They may just try to assassinate your character, or maybe they'll just come after your job and try to get you to lose money. There's all kinds of different ways that people can try to harm you. Don't be surprised by this. Expect this to occur. Okay, and, if, and if you don't ever bump into this during the course of your life, are you really being a faithful minister? I mean, maybe you are. Maybe the Lord's just spared you from it. But maybe you're just drawing back. Maybe you're shrinking back. See, Paul, what did he do? Saul. He still saw. He grew in strength. He, he was the opposite of shrinking back in the face of all this resistance. Ask yourself, how do you resist God's work in your life? What are the times you can look back and see that he convicted you of something, he showed you something, a new way to go, a way to grow, 
a way to be more like Christ, and you've resisted it. Next, please rejoice in God's providential care over your life regularly. Make that a part of your, your regular plan for your prayers. You know, ACTS, adore, confess, give thanks, supplications. Well, that T part, man, give thanks to the Lord for his loving, providential care over your life. Think of, think of Saul in a basket, helped down by friends. Okay, think of Philip. Pooh, off he goes. Think of all the wonderful ways that God takes care of his people that he loves and that he has set his love upon you. And he will care for you. In the face of all threats, all threats, any, you take all the combined threats since the beginning of time up until now and all the ones that will exist until the world comes to a close and all the threats that men could ever even think of, all the threats that the mind of the devil has ever even considered, and none of them can overcome God's providential care for your life. Amen? We should be courageous, encouraged people. Next. Let's be a forgiving church. Let's be a forgiving people. Let's have that gracious and compassionate heart that we can receive from God in Christ by His Spirit towards everyone in our life. Whether they are our enemies or whether they are our friends, whether they are strangers, whether we don't have any relationship with them at all. Let's have God's heart of compassion and mercy towards other human beings. May it mark us that we be so quick to believe the best, so quick to forgive, so quick to embrace, so quick to reopen the door to rebuild trust not minimizing the harm, not minimizing the sin, maximizing the cross, maximizing the harm Christ went through, maximizing my sin that was placed on Him and remembering the cross, the cross, the cross and what He did and being grateful to Him and thinking about what we deserve and that, no, His thoughts are higher than ours, His ways above ours. He loves us so much. May we always remember the cross of Christ in our relationships. May we be blessed to have growing trust in our relationships as we do good to one another. And may we be blessed, pray and ask that we be blessed with, as a fruit of that, growing cooperation and synergy and power as a church, not just here, but over the whole world. Pray for God's church here in our area, please. For all the Christians in our area, that God would build the network of relationships between his people in this area. Maybe you'll get to know your neighbors better as a result of some application of this sermon. Maybe you'll connect with a, a local church right around the corner and you can pray with them because you can't drive an hour to be here. Who knows what you'll do, but maybe this will lead to us seeking greater networks of connections with other Christians in our region. Those we've, we know, those we haven't met. That God would do this, and that we would be able to be that community that knows where the ropes are, knows where the basket is, 
and knows how to work together to do God's will for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed, Lord, acknowledge to you that apart from Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Lord, we know that there is no light in us unless you come and grant the light to our hearts. Lord, we acknowledge that even as you're born again from above children, that there are dark places in our minds and hearts and that we resist the light. Oh, bless us, Father, that we would be like Saul and come to the light and hear your voice and do your will and that we would not be like the Jews who refuse your word and grow more bitter and rebellious. Oh, bless us, Father, in this path that we would grow in our love and our devotion to one another, always having your heart of compassion and mercy to abundantly forgive, and that we would always be growing up in Christ together, Father. That this church and your church throughout this world would be a strong and beautiful body in this earth, all for your glory, in Jesus' name.